please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read this morning uh, verses 7 through 18. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18. I want to extend a special thank you to Joseph Darwin for preaching last week in my stead. It was good to be able to see some family I haven't seen for a few years. Um, But we weren't able to go to church there because of coronavirus uh, concerns in that part of the country where I was. So I very much enjoyed being able to watch this service. felt very much at home. And loved that we have a brother in our church who desires to do what I'm doing here week in, week out. Um, And I want to thank you as a church for giving him that opportunity. Uh, This is is our chance to raise up future pastors and elders and leaders and teachers. And and you guys were so encouraging to him as well from what I heard. So it was a good time uh, to minister away and together. But frankly, Joseph, I'm happy to be doing this again this week. (laughs) I love what I do. Let's look at um, the text. Beginning at verse 7, and you'll need to keep in mind the passage that we read earlier from the book of Exodus to catch what's going on here. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me read the next verse. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. About 150 years ago, The famous Baptist pastor and preacher, Charles Spurgeon, wished New Year's greetings to his congregation with the following. I wish, my brothers and sisters, 
that during this year you may live nearer to Christ than you have ever done before. Depend upon it. It is when we think much of Christ that we think little of ourselves, little of our troubles, and little of the doubts and fears that surround us. Begin from this day, and may God help you. Never let a single day pass over your head without a visit to the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross of Calvary. Spurgeon's wish for his congregation is the same that I share for you. It's been that way from the very first time I preached here five years ago. I preached and prayed on that day that this would be a congregation that would be enamored with Jesus. And here we are five years later saying the exact same thing. One of the interesting things is I've been endeavoring to leverage the word and the ministry of the spirit to captivate you with with Christ is that there have been uh, questions, legitimate questions about how one actually goes about doing that. Treasuring Jesus, loving Jesus, being captivated by Jesus, following Jesus, whatever term we want to use, it can get thrown around a lot and there's a certain expectation of a destination, but there's not often just a really clear, frank explanation of how to get there. I mean, just think of the last few weeks. We broke off from our series in Philippians to do something called Treasuring Christ at Christmas. This, my sermon today is Treasuring Christ Beyond Christmas. <laughs> how do we treasure Christ when we don't have all the other trappings pointing us to Jesus uh, like we do at Christmas time? What's interesting, though, is we did a, mess, a series on Treasuring Christ at Christmas when we were just doing a series on Treasuring Christ in the Gospel. I don't know if you recognized it, but I went back and looked at my calendar. From the four weeks preceding the Christmas messages, we spent four different sermons talking about how we're supposed to be rejoicing in Christ, because that's where we were in the book of Philippians. We started at chapter 3, verse 1, and we made our way subsequently through the chapter, and everything was getting back to how we enjoy Jesus. And I was grateful to receive a very candid email from a sister in our church and this is what she asked. She said, how do we actually delight in Christ? My question is, what about a relationship with Christ do I have to continue striving for? What did Paul see that kept him striving and counting all things as rubbish so that he could gain Christ? What am I striving for? Please don't say a closer walk. I will just ask, what does that mean? Good question. I get the confusion. Sometimes we think that following Jesus, walking with God and Christ is something kind of mystical. You know, like, like maybe there's, there's like a feeling that comes upon us that communicates us to us at some point, some time that we're close. Some people think that, think that it involves like an extended time of prayer early in the morning, maybe a candle's lit. And they feel the presence of God in the room. Or maybe they go on a hike and they pray for an extended period of time. And then all of a sudden, now they feel it. Now they're close to Jesus. But friends, such mystical approaches are not what I've been commending to you. 
we're not looking for just raw and random emotion. Other people take what I would call a more intellectual approach. Uh, Experiencing Jesus is less like a seance and more like a study. It's all about the intellect. For them, to draw near to Christ is to break out a Bible and some commentaries and a notebook and to spend some time, quote-unquote, digging into the Word. And if they feel like, if they know a lot about the historical background and the original grammar, and they can actually even quote some Greek words and make some cross-references, and they know a lot of stuff, that somehow they're closer to Jesus. It's the intellectual approach. Bible studies, Bible readings, memorization, formal training, classes, uh, multiple Christian books on the shelf. I think our church probably would err more toward the latter than the former. But I think all types would be represented. I don't have a problem with study. And I don't have a problem with solitude. But friends, I want you to know that when we talk about you following closely behind Jesus, pursuing him, enjoying him, neither one of those things are what we have in mind. I want to communicate with you today as if I were speaking to my own wife or children on this topic. If someone asked me, if, if my kids asked me, if, if Tanya asked me, Justin, how, how do I, how do I follow closely behind Christ? How do I pursue Him? That's the answer that, that I want to be able to give. And I want to give it in that kind of tone. I don't want to make this something experimental or theoretical. I want it to be practical for you. And to do that, if Tanya was asking me the question, if Eden were asking me the question, I actually would do it the way I'm about to do it now, which is going to require you to listen to something that's going to be a little uncomfortable. That scares you, doesn't it? (laughs) What are you going to do? Well, one of the things that I love about this church is that our church loves sequential exposition of scriptures. By that, I mean that you normally like for me to start at the beginning of a book and not stop until I get to the end of it. And I love doing that, and we will resume that next week. But if I were to answer this question for my wife or my children, I wouldn't do that. I would actually look at several scriptures and not just one. In fact, I had a brother (laughs) offer a critique to me the other day, and I asked for it. Don't worry, it's not like I'm getting picked on all the time. I said, hey, what would make my preaching better here? And he says, oh, I love your preaching. He says, I just don't like it as much when you're not doing like an exposition through a text. Um, I feel uncomfortable when you're not doing that. I'm like hey, you know what, I feel uncomfortable when I'm not doing that either. So (laughs) we're all in the same boat. But here's what I would keep in mind. For all of you who are here today, uh, if I'm not doing what I normally love to do, I must think that what I'm about to say is pretty important. So just keep that in mind. It's kind of like the soft-spoken person in your family who, like, never raises their voice. If they ever yell about something, you better listen. If my normal method is just to work the way through the text, but I'm going to jump from that to cover something else, just know that this is probably pretty important. But to make it as tolerable for you as possible, here's what I am going to do. I will exposit a verse, and then I will expand upon its significance. If you were taking notes today, I I would actually just give you basically the principle 
of treasuring Christ and then the practicalities of treasuring Christ. The principle we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Practicalities I will expand on thereafter. How do we visit the cross, as Spurgeon would say? How do we live nearer to Christ? How do we enjoy our relationship with Jesus? First of all, we need to grasp the principle of why we must be focused on Jesus. And, and here it is. I'll say it in a statement, and maybe this is something that could stick with you mentally. We are transformed into Jesus' likeness insofar as we are transfixed by Jesus' likeness. We are transformed insofar as we are transfixed. We need to be focusing upon Jesus. That is the way that we change. Look at this text again in 2 Corinthians. Paul, in context here, is actually writing an extended section on why he enjoys the ministry that he does. The Corinthians have caused him a lot of heartache. If anybody knows anything about his history with them, they were a pretty problematic church. But he's actually reporting to encourage them that even though they have been a pain in the backside for him regularly, he still is delighted that he gets to be what he calls a minister of the new covenant to them. A minister of the new covenant. By that he means the gospel. He is delighted and wants them to be delighted that they are members of this new covenant community and he is happy to keep leading them in it. And what he does here is actually explains to them why he's so happy even though things are so bad. And the thing that makes him so happy is that he gets to talk to people about their relationship with God through Christ. And he even references it or compares it to the old way that people used to relate to Christ. You notice that language in the text in 2 Corinthians 3? He talked about the old covenant and a new covenant. Uh, theologically speaking, we, we need a little bit of background here, and I will en- try to engage your, your, your knowledge of Scripture for a moment. We know that God created the world perfect and good, and we were created to rule and reign in His stead and represent Him. The relationship at the beginning was perfect, and yet... Our first parents broke said relationship through their own rebellion. And God took the initiative to reconcile the relationship again. And you know the way that he would do that? Through establishing a covenant with his people. Covenant is a relational contract, if you will. I could give a fancier definition, but covenants establish relationships. And so, in the Old Testament, the the primary reconciling covenant would take place in what was called the Mosaic or Sinaitic administration. This was when Moses marched up on the mountain and he actually represented the people of God to God and entered into a relationship with him through what we know as the Ten Words and all the things that would follow that, or the Ten Commandments. And the great thing about that was, listen to this, they were going to enjoy relationship with God. But there was a downside to that Old Covenant. Because the way that they would ongoingly enjoy this relationship with God would be through their works and rituals. Now let me be clear. The initiation of the relationship, the creation of that relationship in the Old Testament was by faith alone. I don't want anybody to walk out of here today thinking that in the Old Testament people were saved by works and in the New Testament they're saved by grace. That is not true. It was all of God's grace that he would enter into relationship with him. But it was still not that 
great as we have it today because the ongoing enjoyment of that relationship happened through rules and rituals. And you can mess up rules and rituals. So God initiates the relationship totally of grace, and yet the ongoing nature of the relationship largely depended upon them, and so it wasn't that great. It, it was kind of like it had a great curb appeal at the beginning, but once you were in it, you're like, man, I wish we had something a little better. And Paul was saying, I get to minister and preach to something better because Christ would eventually come, and he would take on the status of the other covenant partner, and he would fulfill all those rules and rituals for the people, providing an eternally secure relationship. And this is what he says. Paul says, I minister this covenant. I get to tell you guys about not only a relationship with God, but an even better relationship with God, because it can't be severed because Christ has done it all. And so what he does is he's going to reference then the experience that Moses had with the experience that we had. There was this time in the Old Testament where Moses wants to enter into this relationship with God. He marches up to the mountain at God's invitation and he says to God, do you remember this in Exodus 33? God, show me your glory. If we're going to enter this relationship, if I'm going to represent you and the people are going to represent you, I need to know that you're with me and I want to see you in all your glory. The word glory in Hebrew is kavod. It means weight or heaviness. Moses wanted to see the full display of God's perfection and God says to him, I can't show you the full display of my uh, perfection, but I can't show you a mediated display. He says, I'm not going to show you my face in anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a face, he's a spirit. He says, I'll show you my back. Again, God doesn't have a back either, he's a spirit. He's saying, this is going to be a mediated, uh, restricted view of who I am, but I'm going to show you who I am. And here's what happened. Moses hides in the cleft of a rock at God's request. And then God shows himself to Moses in this mediated way, and he gives him the Ten Commandments. He establishes this old covenant, and here's what happens. Moses is up there 40 days and 40 nights. And he comes back down the mountain. And because he's been in the presence of God and this relationship being established, his face is literally glowing. And Moses speaks to the people and they see his face and it's so bright. It's like kind of like you could stare at the sun, but you just can't stare at it long. They could see it. They could see God's glory reflecting off of his face. And because it was so painful for them, they had to actually cover Moses' face when he wasn't directly speaking to them. Now, here's what you should catch. And I'm explaining what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 3. That's glorious. That's amazing. Think about that. A relationship with God that is so powerful, that is so amazing, being in his presence so deeply that it is physically reflected on your face. And that was the old covenant. That was the way things used to be. I mean, even in that old system, God represented himself in such a brilliant way. I think we need to be careful sometimes as new covenant Christians to not disparage the old covenant as if it was trash. (laughs) There was glory to it, Paul says, but this is what he says. I get to minister something even more glorious than that. You say, Justin, it doesn't get any better than standing in the presence of God 
in the cleft of a rock for 40 days and 40 nights, and then your face glowing, and Paul would say, I beg to differ, it is different, and it is better. And let me tell you what's better. It is the crucified and risen again Lord Jesus. That is the even more climactic display of the glory of God and the fact that he died and rose again to provide an eternal relationship for all who return to him in faith and repentance. That is great news. And Paul says, I get to minister that. You may not see a physical glow on my face, but you feel the effects of a real change in your heart and in your life. And this gets us to verse 18. Because Paul wants them to be excited about this new relationship as well. And look at your Bibles again. Paul says, and we all, not just Moses, but we all, with unveiled face, there's no mediation. We get the full sight. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. And when that happens, we don't just have a light on our face. We're actually being transformed, metamorphosized, if I transliterate it, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. What I'm trying to show you here, friends, is that when it comes to our enjoyment of Jesus, there is an objective and an outcome. Paul says in this new covenant, the way this new covenant works, you know how how, how it unfolds, the way that you uh, interact, you look to Jesus and you enjoy him. You take in Christ and all of his beauty and all of his perfection. Now, I know what I think the well-meaning among us would say. I don't see Jesus anywhere. (laughs) He hasn't shown up to me in my closet. I don't FaceTime Jesus at my house. What exactly are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about the same thing Paul is talking about. Indeed, Paul did get to see Christ physically on the road to Damascus, but the Corinthians certainly did not. And Paul says, you get to behold the glory of the Lord. What is he talking about beholding? He is talking about the knowledge and the awareness of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. Like for him, that counts. Just the historical awareness and trust and faith in what Christ has done for those who have rebelled against God Almighty, that is beholding the glory of God. I'll give you an instance of this. Paul, in every place in 1 Corinthians, makes it clear that when he would come to that church, imagine that, Paul showing up to our church like we were the Corinthians for a moment, you know what he would do? He wouldn't lead us in a seance. I don't think he'd break out the commentaries. He would remind us of who Jesus was. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 into chapter 2. He says, look, I came and preached among you Christ and him crucified. He says in chapter 15 of the same book, 1 Corinthians, he says, I proclaim to you what was of first importance. What was that? That Christ died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures. Have you ever noticed that in every one of the letters that that Paul writes, he starts off talking about what Jesus has done? What is he doing? He is exposing the glory of the risen Christ to them. He said, Justin, I want to see something with my eyes. Paul says, no, you don't. You want to see something through the eyes of faith. What you really want is to actually dwell on who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. 
Notice how the author of Hebrews says it. He says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, what's the author of Hebrews saying? Is he actually encouraging us to have face-to-face interaction with Jesus? No. He's saying you're exposed to the full glory of God when you contemplate who Jesus is and what he has done for those who believe in him. This is the experience that you are seeking. This is what we are beholding. This is what we are enticed with. That is the object, if you will. But notice there's an outcome. When we contemplate what Christ has done for us and who he is to us, something happens. Now, this is fascinating. Look at the text. He says, We all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. But what's the outcome? When that happens, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we become like what we behold, when we see Christ for who He is, that is actually what changes us. That makes us different. This speaks, by the way, of inner transformation in the essence of a person. You know that uh, famous passage in Romans 12 where Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. We always think of conformed as something external, transformed as something on the inside. It happens from the inside out. It is the same word here, friends, from Romans 12. He's saying that when you behold Christ and all of his beauty and all of his glory, it changes you on the inside. You're not just going to adopt new rules, but it will be fundamental heart change. As believers behold the glory of Christ with the eyes of our heart, we are thereby progressively transformed into his image. Another way I could say it, the spiritual sight of Christ by virtue of the delightfulness and beauty of his glory causes us to admire him in such a way that we are satisfied by him. And therefore, listen to this, we don't seek lesser satisfaction in sinful pleasures. When Christ is most captivating to you, everything else loses its appeal. The hymn we used to sing growing up was, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Why? Because <laughs> the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. I don't know about you, friends, but I'm not very enticed by a bologna sandwich if offered a tomahawk ribeye. It is the battle for a superior affection. It is looking and seeing the beauty of who Christ is and what he's done. And then everything else is like, who wants that? That's a change. That's that's something on the inside. This actually affects the heart. The, The glory of Christ captures our affections and it causes us to love what he loves. And so Paul is arguing here, we become what we behold. What transfixes us, transforms us. Um, I think I could prove this positively and negatively. A few examples. Someone who is transfixed by ESPN will be transformed into a fan. It's true. The more I look at my ESPN app, the more interested I am in my team at that moment. When I delete the app, 
I don't care. You're, you're transfixed by the stock market, you'll be transformed into an investor. You start looking at that. Seeing that as the win, checking it out often, it's going to affect your actions. If you're transfixed by bodybuilding, as many young men are, you can be transformed into a weightlifter. I'm not saying you'll be a good one, but you'll at least aspire to be. I mean, I wonder how many kids in the early 80s had a poster of Arnold Schwarzenegger hanging up in their bedroom as inspiration to keep going. You see something, you're enamored by it, you're fascinated by it. You don't have to physically see Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, but it's the fact that you're thinking about that kind of thing that's like, nope, that's the kind of guy that I want to be. God help you. I hope you have higher ambitions. If you're transfixed, I say this to the high school students in the room, if you're transfixed by your GPA, you will be transformed by it. If you look at 4.0 and see success and you think that that is the end-all, be-all, it will have an effect on who you are and how you act. It's true of some women as well. You get transfixed by house stuff. <laughs> you got a Pinterest account. <laughs> You'll be transformed by it. Now all of a sudden we have hundreds of little interior designers in our church. That one's neutral, but I'll say to this one, and this will resonate on an emotional level, but friends, frank, frankly, it's the reality. Um, if you're a young man in the room, if, shoot, you don't have to be a young man. If you're a man in the room and you've been transfixed by pornography, you will be transformed into a pervert. I'm not preaching a message on pornography, but I am saying that that sight changes you. It makes you different. It will affect your marriage. We become like what we behold. And so I say, and Paul says, when you are transfixed by Christ, you are transformed into his likeness. When you behold Christ, you become like him. That's the principle as clearly as I can state it. And what's the outcome? Well, there are two. And I'm going to hit them in reverse order. The first is what I would call consecration or sanctification. Friends, this is the key to all the changes that you want to make. You got some New Year's resolutions this year? I don't have any opinion of whether you should or should not. But there is something about the beginning of the year that it forces us, encourages us to make some changes, to see things differently. Hey, you want to know the way to make some real changes? Look into the face of Christ because it will have an effect. Charles Hodge, the great theologian from Princeton in the 19th century, said it this way, the spirit, we are taught, especially opens the eyes to see the glory of Christ, to see that he is God manifest in the flesh, to discern not only his divine perfections, but his love to us and his suitableness in all respects as our Savior. The apprehension of Christ is transforming the soul and is thereby changed into his image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, John Owen, another expert that I would say at, uh, at, at seeing Christ through the Spirit's leadership in the Word. He says, let us live in constant contemplation of the glory of Christ, and virtue will proceed from Him to repair all our decays, 
to renew a right spirit within us, and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. It will fix the soul unto that object which is suited to give it delight, complacency, and satisfaction. He adds, When the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, when the soul thereon cleaves unto him with intense affections, they will cast out or not give admittance unto those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls hereunto as a constant view of Christ and his glory. Friends, it is only by the light of the sun that the hardness of our hearts will melt away. I referenced Spurgeon earlier. I remember a few years ago reading an illustration that he gave. Spurgeon's the expert at anecdotes and illustrations. Sometimes he has good little one-liners. Sometimes he tells great stories. I want to modernize a story for you that Spurgeon first told to his congregation to illustrate this very point. For those of us who are here in southwest Florida, it is, this is going to be hard to imagine, so I'm going to need to borrow your, your imaginations and your thought for a moment. I want you to imagine with me that it is cold <laughs> and that it is snowy and that it is icy. Very rarely have I seen that in my life because of the places that I've lived, but a few years ago, we lived in D.C. for about six months, and no sooner had we been there maybe two weeks, it was the blizzard of the decade. No kidding, that's what they called it, the blizzard of the decade. Our Southern California rear ends were not prepared for that, literally. We had nothing to cover ourselves, <laughs> and it was miserable. It was amazing, though, when you peek out our little apartment window and we would try to just even walk to the church, all the work that was going into making that a livable condition. We spent $400 on Amazon trying to order, like, winter clothes, getting them all there, and then we were perpetually, like, sweeping off the snow from the porch, putting out ice, and that's just our little porch. Everybody else is doing the same thing, snow plows occasionally coming through, clearing off the streets. I mean, it was impossible, it seemed, to make any progress, to live in that way stone cold and it was hard the craziest thing happened probably six days later after everybody has been wearing themselves out to try to just make things livable the sun broke through the temperature rose and all the snow and all the ice and all the frustration literally melted away. If your heart is hard and cold and icy, you could work your fingers to a bone, but you will not progress until all of that melts away with the exposure of the sun That's what Paul says. He says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You want change? You want something to be different? You look to Jesus, and He is what makes the difference. 
It is so interesting that if we think eschatologically about the end time for a moment, at 1 John 3, 2, we are told that when we see Jesus in all of his glory, physically with our eyes, do you know what the text says will happen? We will be like him because we've seen him just as he is. If that's what's going to happen in the end, why doesn't it happen now? Well, Paul is saying it does happen now. The problem is we're too busy out there with our little brooms and ice picks instead of allowing Jesus to shine upon our hearts and lives and melt away the hardness that is so remnant. This is why we say stuff, and it sounds trite, but I, I have to keep saying it. it. That's why we say preach the gospel to yourself daily. To borrow from Jerry Bridges. D.A. Carson, a fantastic scholar in his own right, was reading just a few days ago. Interesting article about the gospel, what it is and what it is not. And anyway, this came to mind. Now, this is Carson's advice for all of us. He says, the gospel is not just for unbelievers, but also for believers. And, and then let me explain, using his words. He says, the gospel is not a minor theme that deals with the point of entry into the Christian way to be followed by a lot of material that actually brings about life transformation. That's the way we normally treat it, right? Like, all right, this gets us in, and then we work on it from that point forward. No, that's Old Covenant, friends. New Covenant, you need gospel to get in, and you need gospel to proceed. He says, very large swaths of evangelicalism simply presuppose that this is the case. Preaching the gospel, it is argued, is announcing how to be saved from God's condemnation, believing that the gospel guarantees you won't go to hell. But for actual transformation to take place, you need to take a lot of discipleship courses, spiritual enrichment courses, some go-deep spiritual discipline courses, and the like. You need to learn journaling and asceticism and a simple lifestyle and scripture memorization. You need to join a small group or an accountability group or a women's Bible study. And he argues, not for a moment would I speak against the potential good of all these steps. Rather, I'm speaking against the tendency to treat these as post-gospel disciplines. Disciplines divorced from what God has done in Christ Jesus in the gospel of the crucified and resurrected Lord. We have already caught a glimpse of the way our living ought to be tied to the gospel in several texts that speak of living a life in line with the gospel and worthy of the gospel. Moreover, the gospel is regularly presented not only as a truth to be received and believed, but the very power of God to transform. And friends, I would then encourage you to understand that these things that we do to, to actually take in Christ, and I've used this term with our men before, but now I'll use it with you as a church as a whole. The things that we normally do to enjoy Jesus, to see him, to know him, they are pipelines, they are not payments. I think sometimes we think if we pay enough spiritual effort out, doing spiritual things, that God will then pay us back with the changes that we want to see. And yet, what we are having conveyed to us in this text today is that, no, God shines in His Son, and as we look to Him, we are being changed. It is all of grace. It is His kindness. Friends, it is not an effort to stand in sunlight. <laughs> and those things that we do, like reading the Bible and praying and going to church, those are means by which God works. They are pipelines of His grace. They are not payments for them. So generally speaking, we must continue to look to Christ and the gospel 
So one of the outcomes is consecration, is sanctification. It's going to make you different. But can I hit a second outcome? Because there's about, I don't know, 25 of you that I've never seen before. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. But can I mention a second thing? A second outcome of beholding the glory of the Lord, it is conversion. It will save you. This is how one is saved. It is to look to Christ. I know that for some church, God, the gospel uh, may not be appealing, and the text actually identifies that that's the case. Some of you hear me talking right now, and you're like, yeah, I get that. I totally get that. I, I, I want to learn more of Jesus. But some of you are like, who cares? And Paul says, yeah, I get it. Some people are going to say, who cares, because there is a veil over their face. <laughs> they can't see. He calls this veil unbelief. He says it in verse 14. He says, but their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You say, uh, Justin, I don't see the beauty of Christ, and therefore I don't know why I would regularly behold him. Well, look, I need you to look at him for a moment. Look at him through the eyes of faith. Paul is actually going to go on to say that there are people to whom the gospel is veiled, and they are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so what I would call on you, if you don't find Jesus glorious yet, is to look at him by faith. I want you to see him with me, with your mind's eye for a moment, and see him suffering and bleeding and dying for your sin. And the ways that you have rebelled against God, and all the ways that you have defied him, he is actually standing there, arms wide open, ready to receive you if you would just trust in him. Is that not beautiful to you? Is that not glorious? Is that not great? Is that not stupendous? You look to Jesus in this way, and it will change you. You say, I don't know about that. I'm telling you, trust that it's true. You say, Justin, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the baggage that I carry. Listen to me. He loves. He loves to display his glory by forgiving great sins and sinners. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to turn it into yourself. You let him forgive you as a great savior of great sinners. Look to Jesus and be consecrated. Look to Jesus. Be converted. So the objective here for us is to behold the glory of Christ, to to have a functional awareness and appreciation for who he is and what he's done. And what's the outcome of that? When we do that, we will be different. <laughs> we will be transformed. We will be converted. And if already converted, we will be further consecrated. That's the point. That's the principle. But now let me hit the practicality. So Justin, how, how do I continue to look at Jesus then? Well, you look to Jesus you behold his glory through the means that he himself has provided for you to do so. Those means, when we organize the scriptures together, 
are three. The word, or I could say his voice. Prayer, or I could say his ear. And church, I could say his body. Word, prayer, church. His voice, his ear, his body. Those are the ways in which we actually enjoy Jesus. That's how we look to him. And guess what? All of those things require faith. If you read the word, for example, and you're like, man, I don't know about this. I don't know if this is going to do it. You know, if, like, if you don't believe that this word is disclosing to you who Christ is, okay, it's not going to work. <laughs> These are means of faith. If you pray just because it's your ritual, but not knowing that God is hearing you on account of what Christ has done, it's not going to mean anything. And you could show up to church just as hard-hearted as anybody else. The old preachers used to say, just because you're in a garage doesn't make you a car. <laughs> and a similar thing would be true of those who would gather in a building like this. That these are appropriated by faith, but friends, these are the means. These are the ways that God shows Christ to us. These are the ways that we actually enjoy him. Uh, J.C. Ryle said it this way. He says, the means of grace, as such as Bible reading, private prayer, and regularly worshiping God in church, wherein one hears the word taught and participates in the Lord's Supper. He says, I lay it down as a simple matter of fact that no one who is careless about such things must ever expect to make progress in Christian growth. I find no record of any eminent saint who ever neglected them. They are the appointed channels through which the Holy Spirit conveys fresh supplies of grace to the soul and strengthens the work which he has begun in the inward man. He says, our God is a God who works by means, and he will never bless the soul of that man who pretends to be so high and spiritual that he can get on without them. Friends, these are the basics. These are the fundamentals. Word, prayer, and church. And I want you to know that they happen in different ways. Some of you hear the word word, and you immediately think you know what I'm talking about. You're like, Justin, I know what you're talking about. It's a new year. You're talking about reading four chapters a day so I can make it through my Bible by the end of the year. That is not what I'm talking about. I am talking about God's Word communicated through this book. Sometimes it is preached in a setting like this. Sometimes we read it directly from the pages of Scripture. Sometimes we read another book or listen to an audio book in which someone is discussing said words of Scripture. <laughs> but the point, before you get into the details, is the Word, God's Word, is what makes the difference in our hearts and lives. Am I against you reading four chapters a day, like Robert Murray McShane, to read through the Bible? Absolutely not. I would be glad for you to do that. But don't think that you automatically know. Don't limit yourself to that. God speaks through this book, and sometimes it comes through a preacher. Sometimes it comes through a book. Sometimes it comes directly from the pages themselves. But the point is, we avail ourselves of the Word. You know there are corporate expressions of the Word? What is happening right now, friends, listen to this. What is happening right now is a means of grace in your life. And I say that as humbly as I can. I am nothing. I am just the channel through which this word happens to flow this morning. And that's what makes a difference. This is a sanctifying event. God is at work. He is showing you who Christ is today. And guess what? When you wake up tomorrow morning and you try to read whatever it is that you want to read from the Scriptures, God's at work there too. So there's a corporate dimension. There is, listen, a personal dimension when you do it privately. And guess what? There's an interpersonal aspect of this. You know when somebody writes you a card, for example, and says, I'm praying for you, and they put a Bible verse in that card? You know what they're doing? They are ministering the Word to you. That is an interpersonal event. 
They are taking truth and they are applying it to your heart. When you get together and have coffee with another brother or sister in Christ and they say to you, hey, I think you should consider this passage because it really, I think, would help you in this particular moment. You know what's happening? That is a means of grace. God is working in you to show Christ to you. And so I, I would only caution you not to feel too guilty that you didn't do it the way that you wanted. I, I think that we are actually well inundated with the work. Sometimes we don't think that we've done enough. We behold him by faith through the word. We behold him by faith in prayer. Prayer happens corporately, individually, and interpersonally. Did you know that we've already spent, listen to this, we've already spent about 10 to 12 minutes praying this morning? You said, Justin, it doesn't count, we're in church. Who says? <laughs> I used to grow up thinking that, like, you know what, I, I just prayed for 12 minutes of church because we sang these few songs, and then I was praying with the pastor when he was praying, and then there was a closing prayer. Uh, but it doesn't count unless I go do it on my own somewhere. Friends, corporate prayer is a real thing. Just kind of read the Old Testament. The Psalms would help you a lot. We've been praying this morning. God has been working this morning. We have been interacting with the risen Christ through prayer. We prayed that God would show us Christ in his word. Listen, prayer, I think, is the, the, the great Achilles heel of many Christians because they're thinking they didn't do it long enough or whatever. Look, prayer is just expressing your dependence upon God. And you will avail yourself of that means as much as you need. And this is what I would say. If you don't pray very much, it's because you don't realize you need God very much. But guess what? The more you grow in holiness, the more you'll realize you need him. And don't worry, you'll start praying more eventually. <laughs> you'll see. But don't say, my New Year's resolution is to pray an hour a day. I've made that mistake. It is painful. Look, if you're, if you're looking at your clock, wondering if you're done praying it, you're done. <laughs> you're done. <laughs> we behold him also in the church. Church is such an interesting one because several things are happening. A church is constituted by the preached word, what's happening now, and then the practice of the ordinances, which we'll do in just a few moments. God is conveying grace. He is showing Christ to you, not only through what's happening here, but also through what's going to happen with this. And yes, as much as I don't like these little plastic cups and the coronavirus stuff, this is enough to convey Broken body, shed blood for you. It's grace. Means of grace. It is a way to experience Christ. We do this corporately and we do this interpersonally through the ongoing relationship that's been constituted on account of this. We all eat the same meal saying we're all in the same family and guess what? When we leave this place, we spend time together as a family. This is the primary family gathering, but it would make sense that we hang out at other points. And that is a means of God's grace. I was reading this week, and I'm sorry to quote so many people, but I just, I'm always assured to know that I'm not crazy. Like, I'm not the only one that thinks something. So, that's why I do this. This is public catharsis. Please forgive me. So, in this case, I'm actually, I've just finished last year reading a, a, a theology by this brother named Robert Latham, and anyway, it's just so helpful. He says, look, the same means that bring us into the covenant keep us there. There are no extraordinary sanctifying devices. 
The Spirit sanctifies us through the ministry of the Word, the sacraments, and prayer, since each provides access to Christ. And now he speaks to the contemporary church. Listen to this, and we need to be careful of this. He says, the, the multi-service cafeteria style of much popular American Christianity, the idea of a church with a wide range of programs catering for every taste, militates against our use of the ordinary means of growth and grace. It is neither necessarily nor intrinsically wrong to have ministries of various kinds. However, the issue is that God has provided the means of sanctification, all the tools we need to fit us to serve him during his, this life and to enter his eternal kingdom thereafter. These are the ministries of the word, the sacraments, and prayer. What else do churches need in order to serve Christ? They may well require a barrage of services and programs in order to be successful and grow in corporate entities. However, that is something completely different. Meeting felt needs with felt solutions. What the church and its members really need are the faithful ministry of the word, the right use of the sacraments, and prayer with love as the outflow. These are the tools that God has given. This isn't the Life at Faith class, but if we were at the Life at Faith class today and I was trying to explain to you what our church is like, I could probably read that paragraph. I love that we're not consumed with becoming some multi-ethnic entity, some growing business. But we keep it pretty simple around here. We preach the word, we practice the ordinances, and we pray. That's what a church is. Now, I, I'm not going to critique other things that could happen in a church or things that we would want to happen. Or, I'm not saying this is all we do. But guess what? Even in the children's programs that we offer and even in the extra Bible studies that we do, you know what's still involved? Word, prayer, fellowship, church. That's what we need. So let me be clear. These means of grace are indeed grace. They are pipelines, not payments. To put it another way, they are support. They are not challenge. I'm so concerned about this. So many of you view church and the Bible and prayer as, as, as a challenge. And like, if you didn't avail yourself of those things, like you sinned in some way. I mean, the problem is for you it's not only do you struggle with real sin, but then you begin to accept a false guilt because you would call not reading your Bible in the morning, for example, a, a sin of omission. <laughs> Did you know that there is nowhere in this Bible that says that you have to read it every day? <sighs> I see the hatred and the disgust. Listen, friends. They didn't even have a printed copy of the Bible until the 1400s. You understand that people have been great Christians for over 3,000 years without a printed copy of the Bible. And yet, if you forget, or you didn't have time, or you didn't read your four chapters, or you didn't spend your one hour, you're in a tailspin for the rest of the day because you didn't perform your religious duties to God. No, friends, this is a means of grace, not guilt. It is support, not challenge. I honestly think that some people come to communion and they wonder if they could partake because they didn't do their devotions faithfully. 
Who said you have to do that? Listen to me. You get to do it. You get to do it. It's not a got to, it's a get to. And as long as you're viewing it as a got to, you will struggle and you will battle. You will scrape ice and you will dig snow, but you will not enjoy the freedom of basking in the glory of Christ. I assure you, you fall in love with Jesus, you're going to read the word and you're going to pray and you're going to be a church. But you can't do those three things without beholding the glory of Jesus. John Piper writes, the essence of the Christian life is learning to fight for joy in a way that does not replace grace. He goes on, he says, in our diligent efforts to appropriate the means of grace, the glory of Jesus stands at the very center, giving life to all the other means. And so our aim is to saturate the eyes of our hearts with the all-satisfying vision of the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. I don't think that there's anyone who is known as much for enjoying God and His glory as much as the great theologian Jonathan Edwards. And he would write of these, what we call disciplines, but what I would prefer to call the means of grace. He says, In these we should endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying ourselves in the way of allurement. He says, when you put yourself in the Word and when you start praying and when you show up at church, you know what you're doing? You're putting yourself in the environment to be enticed by Jesus. I didn't get paid to say this, so I just want you to know ahead of time. But there's a new chocolate shop in town right beside the coffee shop that I like. It's Kilwins, and you can smell it 20 yards away. Don't tell my wife. But sometimes when I'm going to the coffee shop, I walk through the chocolate shop just because I want to be enticed by it. <laughs> Isn't it good to want something? I may or may not occasionally sample things. It's the way of allurement. I know what happens if I show up in a chocolate shop. And I know what happens when I plant myself in the word. And I know what happens when I get on my knees in prayer. And I know what happens when I show up to church. It's the way of allurement. You see how we're fighting things here? You see how this all deals with the glory of Jesus and not guilt or grit? my goal for all of you in availing yourself of these means, and I'm not going to be over prescriptive, but I would say I would long for you to avail yourself of the means of grace with simplicity and stability and confidence and power and joy. I don't think Tanya would mind me saying this, but occasionally asking her about time in the Word and that kind of thing, she's like, oh, I just didn't get as much time as I, I wanted to. And I say, okay, great, fine. <laughs> no guilt. I'm glad you were able to spend some time in the Word. I say that especially to busy mothers in the room who have children that keep you awake at night. Uh, just because you don't get the hour that you used to get to spend in the Word, just expose yourself to the Word. Let me give you a contrast. A day in the life of, or the week of. Uh, 
This, I don't do case studies very often, but I'm going to do a case study today between two couples. You'll like their names. I like their names. Uh, one is Larry the Legalist and Daisy the Dominated. Huh? The other is Gary the Grateful and Amy the Appreciative. So Larry and Daisy, what's their approach to the word? Well, it's pretty regimented. It's precise and it is long, emphasis on long. They love long Bible studies. But when it doesn't happen, they feel guilty and they're trying to make it up. In fact, Gary's probably sitting here today absolutely ticked off that he's already missed one day on his Bible reading plan, which means he's now going to have to read eight chapters tomorrow instead of the normal four. But even though they haven't journaled for weeks, and even though they regularly repent of unfaithfulness, they know they have so far to go. They just do not find encouragement in the Word, and they know that if they could just get their act together and read the Bible more, they'd be in better shape. When it comes to prayer, they're, they're pretty formulaic and checklisty. <laughs> Man, they love their checklist. And if they get through their checklist, they know that they've done the prayer that they need to do for the day. They feel good about themselves, but heaven help their children if that doesn't happen. Because they're a little ticked off that they didn't do what they needed to do that morning. They're pretty perfunctory about their prayers. Well, always before meals and always before Christian meetings. They know that that's how you have to start a meeting. They know that's how you have to start a meal. But outside of that, they don't pray very much. Uh, the watch, they watch the clock from time to time to make sure they've reached their allotted time, but they do pray. And then church. Uh, when it comes to church for them, they have what I would call a five-to-thrive mindset. Uh, they do seminars, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, small group, and they try to make sure they have at least one other person meeting a week. So they go for five. If for some reason... Uh, there's not a small group, they're going to make it up with another meeting with somebody else. But, frankly, they can't wait for those things to be over so they can just go home and decompress. They don't enjoy them, they endure them. Church for them is not support, but challenge. It's an event. Communion is a time of guilt and confession instead of reflection on what God has done for them in Christ. And then, frankly, I would say that they probably wouldn't even know if we took communion for the service from three months if it ever happened. It's not like they actually look forward to it. But there's another couple. I'd call them Gary and Amy. Gary the grateful, Amy the appreciative. And their word, their time in the word is simple, consistent, and enjoyable. But it's not very long. Sometimes it's a Proverbs a day. Sometimes it's a short devotional book. They regularly listen to Christ-centered audiobooks or podcasts on their drive just because they want to, not because they have to. They just want to be thinking about Christ. They typically have a good Christian book laying around to read for a few pages a day, but they don't feel dominated if they don't happen to read very much in it. They just like it. When it comes to prayer, they, they pray simply. They normally use the Lord's Prayer as an outline in the mornings. It takes just a few moments for them to pray through as they think about their needs for that day. And they regularly, though, ask for others to pray with them because they just know they need the Lord. They do the meals, they do the meetings, but sometimes they'll reach out to our brother and sister in Christ and say, would you just pray with me? At church, even, they engage in the prayers during the singing. They know that they're praying. They pray, engage in the pastoral prayer. And then when it comes to the church, they treasure the gathering and members' meetings because that's when they're with the whole family. 
In fact, they put so much stock into that that they arrive early and they leave late. They just love spending time with God's people. From there, they may set up a couple of other things through the week, whether it's one-on-one meetings or a small group or a seminar, but they just really love it when everybody's together. Communion for them is a highlight because they see it as a tangible expression of Christ's love, not an outpouring of guilt. They not only hear of Christ, but they get to taste and touch and see Him in a way that reminds them all the more of His love for them and the love that they should have for others. It's quite a difference between the two. And so my prayer is the same as Spurgeon's. I wish, my brothers and sisters, that during this year, you may live nearer to Christ than you have ever done. Depend upon it. It is when we think much of Christ that we think little of ourselves, little of our troubles, and little of the doubts and fears that surround us. Begin from this day, and may God help you. Never let a single day pass over your head without a visit to the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross of Calvary. The principle, behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ and become like Him. The practicalities, By faith, regularly, consistently, simply avail yourself of the means He has provided. Word, prayer, church.